Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing China's recent activities and evolving policy in the South China Sea. Competition over energy resources, fish, and sovereignty is a permanent feature in the contested waters of the South China Sea. The six claimants, China, Vietnam, the Philippines, Malaysia, Brunei, and Taiwan, are all engaged in various activities aimed at safeguarding their maritime rights and interests. With the establishment of military outposts on features in the Paracels and the Spratleys, China has bolstered its ability to advance its interests, in part by intimidating and coercing other claimants. Research by China Power has found that at least one Chinese maritime law enforcement vessel has been involved in 73% of reported incidents in the South China Sea since 2010. China also has a large maritime militia disguised as fishing vessels that patrol, surveil, and harass fishing boats from other countries. At the same time, diplomacy to ease tensions and manage disputes in the South China Sea continue between China and the ten members of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. To discuss China's behavior, motivations, policy, and strategy in the South China Sea, including recent incidents and escalating tensions with the Philippines and Vietnam in particular. We're joined by my colleague Greg Poling. Greg is director of the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative and a fellow with the Southeast Asia Program at CSIS. Thanks for joining us today, Greg. Hi, Bonnie. Thanks for having me. Let's start off talking about the. Situation in general in the South China Sea since the July 2016 arbitral tribunal decision, the Chinese have insisted tensions have eased in the South China Sea. Beijing says it's managing、uh, the differences between China and the claimants. It is negotiating with ASEAN and making progress on the code of conduct. So, to the extent that there is any instability, you know, the Chinese say the U.S. is at fault. Is this narrative compelling? How is it viewed by the other claimants and the the other regional states? And how would you describe the situation today in the South China Sea? Well, I don't think that narrative stands up very well to the facts, but it's understandable why that is the narrative Beijing's pushing. Because, of course, during the arbitration, the biggest headache for Beijing was the reputational damage it was causing. This idea that China was being made to look like a lawbreaker and an outcast, and With the Philippines deciding to quiet down on pushing its rights and pushing the arbitral award, China has an incentive to paint all remaining tensions as the fault of outside powers, primarily the U.S. But when you look at facts on the ground, we continue to see increases in Chinese military deployments, high-end platforms to their islands and whatnot. Especially worrying is the increase in the number of Chinese surface vessels, Navy and Coast Guard, but especially the fishing and maritime militia. Which are slowly pushing Vietnamese and Filipino and Malaysian actors out of these waters and increasing the frequency of low-intensity interactions. So, I mean, if there is a status quo right now, it seems one that is inherently unstable to my mind, because Beijing's policy remains predicated on establishing dominance over the sea, the seabed, the airspace of the Nine Dash Line. It can't do that. Without shoving its neighbors out of that area, and so even if things are relatively quiet, they don't seem like they're going to stay that way to me. So let's drill down into some of the recent incidents,、uh, some of which I think are still ongoing, at least as of today. In early July, a Chinese survey ship entered the waters on Vietnam's continental shelf to conduct what looks like a seismic survey.
and it resulted in a tense standoff between Chinese and Vietnamese vessels. And then in a separate incident, a Chinese Coast Guard ship appears to have threatened Vietnamese vessels servicing a Japanese-owned oil rig that was operating in a block that is within China's nine-dash line. So can you tell us why Beijing, at this particular juncture, is putting pressure on Vietnam? How are the governments in uh, Beijing and Hanoi handling these incidents? And is there a danger of a crisis like what we saw with the Haiyang Shio in 2014? This is the most tense we've seen the relationship between China and Vietnam in five years, doubtless. The underlying cause here, Beijing's desire to prevent all of its neighbors from accessing resources unilaterally within their EEZs and their kind of shelf, it's not new. I think this is a particularly sensitive issue for Vietnam and Vietnam's response by sending so many vessels. I mean, today, uh, we suspect that there are half a dozen Vietnamese boats out there at least, and at least that many Chinese Coast Guard vessels, plus Navy vessels over the horizon and, and civilian ships. So you've got a lot of actors out there, any one of whom can, can screw up, can make a mistake. The central cause here, though, is that you had Rosneft, the Russian company, start drilling a new well at a block that they've been operating in for years off the coast of Vietnam, despite warnings from China last year that they should think awfully hard for doing this. And obviously the Russians ignored that and the Vietnamese ignored it and started the drilling and a Chinese Coast Guard ship shows up and starts harassing that vessel all of last month and ongoing today. The same vessel, the same Coast Guard vessel, by the way, was doing the exact same thing around a Malaysian oil rig on the other side of the South China Sea in May. So it's not just targeting the Vietnamese. But China's response seems to be, okay, you want to continue this oil and gas drilling, we can play our own game. And they send out this survey vessel to conduct a seismic survey for the last two weeks or so in waters right off the coast of Vietnam that cover two huge blocks, oil and gas blocks, that China had put out for foreign bidding back in 2012 at a previous time when they were at a tense moment with Vietnam. No foreign company would touch them. Maybe China wants to try again if it can prove there's commercially viable resources. Either way, this is clearly a bridge too far for Vietnam. And rather than keep it quiet, as Vietnam has with a number of recent incidents over, over the last couple of years regarding oil and gas, they have sent out their own ships, and now this is starting to break into the press. And what remains to be seen is what the public pressure does in Vietnam. Do the authorities feel compelled now to take a stronger stand in the face of public pressure and anti-China sentiment, which could lead you down that rabbit hole toward another Haiyang Shiro 91 incident? What would an escalation look like in this particular instance? How would it happen? Yeah, so the thing that worries me is not that China Coast Guard ship or a Vietnamese fisheries vessel is going to take a shot at another one. It's that you've got a survey ship surrounded by Chinese ships, surrounded by Vietnamese ships, all trying to play chicken, prove that they're the toughest, and a whole bunch of non-uniformed maritime militia buzzing around at the same time. It only takes one mistake, somebody to misjudge distances, somebody to cut across somebody's wake, to get into an incident that escalates very quickly before you can get on the horn and de-escalate, and then you end up with armed vessels staring each other down. All right, let's talk a little bit about what's going on between China and the Philippines. If we go back to November of 2018, there was a memorandum of understanding that was signed between China and the Philippines during Xi Jinping's visit. 
on cooperation in oil and gas developments. Do you expect that this will lead to any progress in joint exploration between the two countries? What would be the significance if it did? And, and, and what are the hurdles that have to be overcome in order for a project to begin? The Philippine government is already starting to temper expectations on this. Uh, when, when Xi Jinping and Rodrigo Duterte signed the MOU last November, they said that there was a, uh, a one-year, at least aspirational clock, that they wanted to take that MOU and get a real deal out of it by this November. And we've already heard the Secretary of Foreign Affairs in the last couple of weeks say, well, that's unlikely to happen. It would be a big deal if it did. The Philippines wants to avoid exactly this kind of problem that we're seeing off the coast of Vietnam and maybe off the coast of Malaysia. Philippines needs, desperately needs to access natural gas at Reed Bank, one of the areas of the seabed in contested waters, and it is not going to happen without China's forbearance. And so they're running out of options here. But the Philippine constitution is extremely strict when it comes to the responsibility of the state to safeguard natural resources, including the seabed. And it's been made quite clear by legal authorities in the Philippines that a deal that is a, a real joint development agreement in which the Philippines effectively agrees to that, that the area is disputed and that they will share oversight with China, that that is unconstitutional. And so Philippine authorities have to thread this needle. Can they come up with a deal that operates under Philippine law, at least in the eyes of the Philippines, but which is acceptable to Beijing? And as a result, you get something like the MOU last year, which is extraordinarily vague, and I think both sides think they signed a different agreement. The Philippines thinks they signed a deal to allow Chinese private companies to invest alongside Philippine companies in a Philippine block under Philippine law. China thinks it signed a deal to share oversight of a joint, joint development area, which is not what Manila is prepared to agree to. So one of two things happens. They either find some way to sign an agreement that doesn't actually get implemented because it's a time bomb politically, or it falls apart. You talked a little bit about the maritime militia that China is operating, especially in the South China Sea. Obviously, these are civilian vessels. In many cases, the captains of these vessels are being trained by the Chinese Navy. They are exercising with the PLA Navy. And we know that they are not really engaged in fishing. They are engaged in intimidation and bullying of neighbors. So Manila has recently protested an increased buildup of these Chinese militia vessels off the coast of Thetu Island, which is a disputed territory where the Philippines has started construction of a new beaching ramp. What exactly is China's maritime militia trying to achieve in this case? And what is the larger purpose then of these militia vessels in the South China Sea? Are they trying to interfere in activities in ways that will then force other countries to back down but avoid a larger military conflict? And does China really think that this will be successful? It's worth noting, of course, in this regard that we have had U.S. officials say that they will not necessarily avoid using U.S. naval ships in order to take actions against either law enforcement or maybe even, by implication, maritime militia vessels, whereas in the past, the United States has said that they would only use gray hulls against gray hulls. So what is China trying to achieve, and will U.S. policy have any impact on Chinese behavior? Well, so we've seen the maritime militia certainly over the last couple of years, emerge as the primary player in China's South China Sea policy, I think for two reasons, right? It works very well for two key parts of China's South China Sea strategy. One, they are 
notionally civilian. There is a degree of deniability. They serve to avoid conflict, as you said, right? It, it allows Beijing to claim that it is not escalating to direct military conflict. And we have seen time and again that Beijing is confident it will win the South China Sea. It will win control of these waters without having to fight for them. It can, through intimidation and bullying and sheer numbers, eventually convince the region that this is over, that it's not worth contesting. If they use force, it incurs a whole lot of uncertainty, risk of escalation. It could bring in the U.S. or outside powers. There's a lot of reputational cost. Why do that when you can just arm a bunch of fishermen and have them go out there and scare your neighbors into compliance? The second thing is that China's goals in the South China Sea are not primarily military. There are certainly added benefits to limiting the ability of the U.S. and other outside powers to operate in the South China Sea, but primarily what China's after is control in peacetime. They can't do that with PLA ships trying to harass every foreign fisher or every oil and gas vessel. They can do it with hundreds of these state-directed fishing fleets flooding the zone, just pushing by sheer weight of numbers Filipinos and Vietnamese and, and Malaysians out of these waters. What we've seen around Fitu Island over the last seven months, since about mid-December of 2018, is the largest and most aggressive deployment of the militia since 2014, since that oil rig incident off the coast of Vietnam. And it is because the Philippines, as you said, started this beaching ramp in, I, th I think, in defiance of what China thought its relationship with the Duterte government was. Beijing was quite confident that Duterte was in China's pocket. And the idea that he would permit these long-delayed upgrade works at B2, where about 100 Filipino civilians and a small military contingent live, really seems to have upset China. More importantly, they're absolutely convinced that they could blow over the Philippines with a light breeze, right? And so they sent out upwards of 100 militia boats from nearby Subi Reef in mid-December. And I think we're quite surprised that the Filipinos didn't just stop the construction work and go home. The numbers have gone up and gone down, but there's still a few dozen, and they've been there for about seven months, monitoring, trying to intimidate, getting in the way. It's pretty clear at this point the Filipinos aren't backing down, so I think we've seen the Chinese slowly ratcheting down the number of ships deployed around there. But this is going to keep happening, and I think it becomes a problem for the Southeast Asians because are you really going to contest every operation this way? Is everything you do in the South China Sea going to have to come with this level of political willingness to accept risk when China's going to send potentially hundreds of boats to get in your way every single time? There's been another incident between China and the Philippines recently, so I wanted to ask you about that. It was in June. A Chinese fishing vessel, may have been maritime militia, rammed into a Philippines fishing boat at Reed Bank, and that Philippines boat sank. Fishermen were abandoned and ultimately rescued by a Vietnamese fishing boat, which happened to be in the area, probably fishing illegally in, in the Philippines' exclusive economic zone. But this, again, goes to this question of how Beijing assesses its relationship with the Philippines and how it is going to handle the issue of the South China Sea within that larger relationship. So when Duterte first came to power, we thought that they had reached an understanding. The Chinese allowed some of the Philippines fishermen to fish near Scarborough Shoal, even if not inside a lagoon. And it appeared that they had reached a modus vivendi. But now it looks like the Chinese are willing to use pressure in ways that they haven't been in the last couple of years. What does this tell us about the 
ability of the relationship to withstand greater pressure on the South China Sea? Are we going to see Duterte's policy go back to where they were under Aquino, or is this outside of the realm of the possible? I think it does show that the this detente between Beijing and Manila is more brittle than a lot of people expected. It was predicated on a level of subservience, of, of complacency on the part of the Philippines that is just politically untenable for any Philippine president. And so when Rodrigo Duterte has found the outer limits of what is politically palatable in the Philippines, of what the public and the defense establishment are willing to accept, and has made the statements he needs to make and push back where he needs to push back, Beijing has reacted with anger, right? They, they had thought, as I said earlier, that the Philippines was firmly in their pocket. And the idea that Manila is still willing to stand up for itself at all does seem to irritate China. It also highlights that a lot of the dynamics at play now that lead to these escalations that will probably eventually lead us into a larger incident are not directly under the day-to-day control of Zhongnanhai. They have put too many actors in too small space and endorsed them acting aggressively. And sooner or later, things like this are going to happen. You can't have hundreds of fishing boats operating in somebody else's waters and not expect them to bump into somebody every once in a while, especially when you get them all hopped up on nationalism and go tell them that they're they're your waters and that the Filipinos are the ones that have stolen them. So we don't know if this single Chinese boat, which was based out out of Guangzhou, was a maritime militia. There's a lot about its behaviors leading up to that that suggest it was either a part-time militia vessel or at least knew it was engaged in illegal activity. But either way, it's kind of beyond the point. With this many aggressive actors, these things are going to happen over and over and over. What's really interesting is how the kind of stain power this has had in the Philippines because it's not the first incident over the course of the Duterte presidency. There have been a number that have put the lie to the idea that Beijing was really changing its underlying strategy in response to to Philippine actions. And yet every time Duterte has managed to weather that storm and distract from it and it fell out of the news after, say, a month, this one is sticking around. It's not going anywhere. And fundamentally, it's because they left 22 Filipinos to die. And it raises the question, what happens next time if there's not a Vietnamese boat nearby to rescue them, as happened this time? What happens when China's strategy inevitably leads to the death of Filipino mariners? So in light of the ongoing friction, the incidents that are taking place in the South China Sea, particularly between China and the Philippines and China and Vietnam. What do you think are the prospects for the code of conduct talks in the future? In 2020, we have Vietnam assuming the rotating leadership of ASEAN. China has said that by 2021, there will be an agreement. Do you think an agreement is possible? If so, what is it look like? What are the prospects for really finding a a path forward that will enable peace and stability to prevail in the South China Sea, even absent a resolution of the territorial disputes? Bleak. The code of conduct process, in my mind, has two fatal flaws. One, the code of conduct is not set up to manage the tensions anyway, even if it did happen. And two, there is not the political willingness on any side to make the compromises that would be required to actually get this done by 2021. So the Chinese have put in language in the single draft negotiating text that suggests they are still reaching for a maximalist interpretation of their claim here, right? That they are not willing to compromise one bit. Um, That includes blocking or asking for a veto 
on all foreign military activity in the South China Sea or seeking to block all foreign companies from investing in oil and gas operations. At the same time, the Vietnamese have basically rejected the entire process. They stapled their own annex onto the single draft and said, yeah, ignore everything that the other 10 negotiators said. Here's our bottom line. The Indonesians have put in language on fisheries that is clearly targeted to China in a way that's unacceptable to Beijing. So, you know, other than maybe the Philippines, and even there, I think there's open questions, I don't see anybody who's really willing to compromise anything on their bottom line right now. The only question is how long does it take for that to blow up? It's not going to happen this year under Thailand because Bangkok has their own problems and a lot of reasons to just kick this thing down the road. Do the Vietnamese blow up the process purposefully next year uh, in the face of continued irritants in the relationship with China? Do they just say, you know what, we need real negotiations? Or do they kick it down the road and let it blow up in Brunei's face the year after? That's, that seems to be the two most likely options. And even if there was a miracle, if Xi Jinping rolled out of bed tomorrow and said, you know what, I feel like really compromising, let's strike a deal. The code of conduct doesn't have language on fisheries management, not real language. Doesn't have language on oil and gas joint development. Doesn't have language on demilitarization. You know, none of the actual triggers for conflict. So even if you got this done in 2021, at best, it's a phase zero. You then need to have actual negotiations on those things, which are the real hard stuff. So I don't see any prospect of a sustainable management regime unless somebody in ASEAN, well, among the claimants, decides that they need to start immediately parallel track of discussions that just involves the claimants on things like fisheries management. You know, get the Cambodians and the Thais out of the room and let's get down to brass tacks with Beijing on how we're going to protect fish species. That also doesn't seem likely in the short term. There was a lot of media coverage in June when China fired anti-ship missiles for the first time in open waters, apparently, and they were fired in the South China Sea as part of a major military exercise. So we may not know until the Pentagon's annual China report comes out exactly which missiles were used, but most people think that this was the DF-21Ds or the DF-26s. These are maneuverable and targetable, apparently against moving vessels like aircraft carriers, so often dubbed the uh, carrier killers. What do you think the message is that China is sending and who is the target? Is this primarily aimed at the United States? Is it also aimed at uh, regional players? And how do countries in the region view this kind of exercise taking place in the South China Sea? Well, you're right that a lot of this still remains unclear, and partially because statements from the U.S. side have been contradictory, where these missiles came from, were they in the Spratleys, were they fired from Hainan, were they ballistic missiles or cruise missiles. If we assume that they were anti-ship ballistic missiles fired from Hainan toward the Spratleys, which is the only explanation that matches the evidence, then they were demonstrating something that we already knew, right, which is that the Chinese can strike anything that moves on or above the South China Sea at any time. And we all knew that. It sends a certain message to have it displayed like this. I think as much as it's a message to the U.S., it's also a message to other extra-regional powers, the Brits, the French, the Japanese, the Indians, the Aussies, who still dare to operate within the Nine Dash Line in ways that irritate Beijing. I would caution against overreaction. Again, I, this didn't tell me anything, and I don't think it told anybody in the Pentagon anything that they didn't already know. It was a bit irresponsible to fire into a high traffic area like this, but it's not the first time that something like that has happened either. The bigger concern for me is not what can China fire from Hainan toward the South China Sea. The bigger concern for me is what is China going to put in the Spratly Islands to establish persistent round-the-clock dominance of the air and sea space. And that's not going to be 
the anti-ship ballistic missiles that it really hopes it never has to use. It's going to be the lower level forces that we've been talking about who, who are the real tip of the spear in convincing regional players that China's already won this thing without ever having to fire a missile. So finally, I'd like to hear you critique U.S. policy in dealing with the South China Sea. The Trump administration has followed in the path to some extent of what the previous Obama administration did, conducting freedom of navigation operations. They've become more routine, more regularized, more frequent, a bit clearer in their goals. In addition to this, do you see any other new elements of the U.S. approach to the South China Sea, and what's missing? Man, how much time do we have? Mm -hmm. uh, so look, the, you're right that the administration has basically followed the playbook of the previous administration. Unfortunately, that playbook wasn't working then, and it's not working now. If anything, the administration's approach, I would argue, has been less effective, if only because it's emerging entirely from the Pentagon. The Obama administration did a lot of things wrong, but at least it did it across government. The Trump administration, basically, you know, the White House and state have entirely deferred to DOD on the South China Sea for the entirety of the administration. That's not a knock on the Pentagon. I think they're doing the best they can with a limited tool set. But the South China Sea is not a military problem when you get right down to it. There's no military solutions here. This is a political problem. Uh, it's a diplomatic problem. It's maybe an economic problem. You need to find ways to leverage Beijing into changing its own claims, and you're not going to do that with the Seventh Fleet. And so... You know, for the Pentagon, they can do FONOFs. They can increase the frequency of FONOFs. They can disinvite China from RIMPAC, which is about the only novel thing this administration has actually done. They can moderately increase ship visits and joint training and arms sales. But all of that at best is treading water. The only way you get to a sustainable, you know, management, a new status quo in the South China Sea that we can live with that doesn't result in the Chinese lake is with sustained pressure from the State Department with direction from the White House, maybe get Treasury involved to talk about sanctions, and none of that is happening. I am a little optimistic that we've seen some new life breathed into the State Department. Since Rex Tillerson's left, the State Department has been empowered to do its job again. It's still grossly understaffed, and they've got a backlog of you know two and a half years of work that didn't get done. But we are seeing some positive signs that they're thinking about the South China Sea, Secretary Pompeo's clarification in Manila on February 28th that any attack by Chinese forces against Filipino forces in the South China Sea will trigger our mutual defense treaty. That was a big deal. Now we need to follow it up. The bilateral strategic dialogue with the Philippines just last week uh, went pretty well. I mean, it wasn't fantastic, but if followed through, could have set some of the groundwork for closer coordination. I still, though, don't see the effort to put the South China Sea back at the center of the diplomatic calendar the way it was in 2015 and 2016. You know, when U.S. leaders are going around to whether it's ASEAN meetings or the G7, where is the South China Sea? It's fallen from number one or number two on the agenda to number six or seven, and that is not going to bear any reputational cost for China. China is not being seen as the bully and the outlaw it is because nobody's talking about it at senior levels. Also, it remains absurd to me that in the wake of Russian support for paramilitaries in eastern Ukraine, we were very quick to rally support around sanctions on Russian entities and Russian companies who supported those operations. There has been virtually no effort to sanction Chinese bad actors who have engaged in illegal activity in the South China Sea. 
We do have the reintroduction of the South China Sea Sanctions Act in the Senate and House right now, but that was written two years ago for a South China Sea that really no longer exists. And when you look at the kinds of actors they're naming and shaming, they're talking about island building. Island building has been done for three years. We chose not to fight that battle. So you know this is not going away. It'll be here for the next administration to deal with and probably the administration after that. We haven't lost it, but we are losing our position every day. And the next administration, if something doesn't change radically, is going to come in in a much more disadvantageous position than this administration came in before they chose to ignore the issue. Well, thank you for joining us today. And uh, of course, for all of our listeners, for anything you want to know about South China Sea, go to the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative at amti.csis.org. And thank you, Greg Poling, who directs AMTI, for joining us today. Thanks, Bonnie.